You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Doc G, and today we're going to earn and invest in getting broke, busted, and disgusted with documentary filmmaker Adam Carroll. I recently completed an unsanctioned, unsupervised psychological experiment on my children. (laughs) The premise of which was $10,000 in cash on the kitchen table and a sign next to it that said, don't touch the money yet. And before I dive into it, you should know that we are a game-playing family. We play ball games, board games, dice games, card games. We play all sorts of games, but the games that my children love to play most are games like Monopoly. And when they play Monopoly, they play marathon games of Monopoly that last hours and hours over days of play. Each of my kids has a unique strategy and personality when they play Monopoly. My daughter, who is 11, she is always the dog. She plays entirely for chance and community chess cards. You could say that she uses the luck strategy. My nine-year-old son is always the car, a very strategic player, He buys all of the railroads and all of the utilities and then proceeds to put houses and hotels on the most expensive properties. Very savvy. And then his younger brother, who is seven, he buys everything that he lands on with no exception, (laughs) which is fitting because he is the wheelbarrow. Now, before I tell you how my experiment unfolded, first I have to share an observation that led me to the creation of it. One Monopoly marathon Saturday morning, I was playing with my kids and noticed that they were all playing just outside of the rules of the game. So they were doing things like buying each other out of jail and lending each other money to buy properties. And I found myself going, guys, this is not how this game is played. To which they would say, dad, it's fine. We just want her on the board with us. Or he can pay me back at the end of the game when he's flush with cash. And I'm thinking, again, what am I teaching these kids? So I started watching how they were playing, listening to their banter, getting a feel for how they were making decisions. And I had this thought, what if they're playing this way because the money isn't real? And it's this concept I've been reading a lot about lately. It's called financial abstraction. The notion that when money becomes more and more of an idea, less tangible, and therefore more abstract, it changes the way that we interact with it on a regular basis. 
Adam Carroll is a professional speaker, author, and documentary filmmaker. His film, Broke, Busted, and Disgusted, came out in 2016 and shined a light on our burgeoning student loan crisis. Adam, welcome to the show. Doc, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you and your audience, and particularly about this topic. It's an important topic and one that seems to come back over and over again. Your documentary came out in 2016. It's now 2020. We are four years past that point. Has the story changed? It's an interesting question. I think the story has not changed. In fact, it's been exacerbated by some of the policies that have been put in place about uh, allowing students or, or borrowers to kick their terms out even longer. I'm having more and more conversations with people today, Doc, than I was when the documentary was was filmed around the fact that they can't make their their payment. So they are on some graduated repayment plan whereby they will never pay off the student loan. That's what frightens me the most about today's environment. It's a salient point because as you were mentioning, some of the legislation having to do with the COVID pandemic kicks down the road a little bit, paying off those monthly payments. I want to quote you. I read this somewhere when you were talking about your college experience. You said, I was a rich college kid living on borrowed money and became a broke professional. And this really ties in a little bit to the beginning of your TED speech, which I just played for you. This idea that money doesn't necessarily feel real when Mm -hmm. you're young. Tell me about your own story. Did you feel like you were really living it up in college? I felt like there were no consequences to my actions. And I think that's that's the byproduct of the college environment today is credit is so easily obtainable. Student loans are so easily obtainable that a student can literally live for a good four, five, six years and never feel the consequences of their financial actions. And then you compound that on the fact that many of these students, and I've talked to hundreds of thousands of students today, Doc, across 750 college campuses. And what I found was that the students who were not taught sound money principles while they were at home, they went from zero to 18 almost habituating themselves in this pattern of immediate gratification and no consequences to the money decisions. And then you go for another five or six years in college. So imagine the first quarter of your life living it, or, or third of your life even, living it in this air of like, I could make any decision I want and it doesn't make any difference. I can have Starbucks every day, twice a day for five years or 23 years and never have to worry about it. So it's, it's monopoly money. It's monopoly money. It's all fake. And so long as I can afford the payment, I'm good is sort of the mentality. And, and that for me is the biggest concern. And, and candidly, one of the messages I try and share today in a very positive and uplifting way is, hey, man, don't, don't payment yourself into a corner. But that's what we do as Americans. We are taught how to do this through the banking system and the higher education funding system is that if you can afford the payments, you're golden. And yet, just being able to afford payments, unfortunately, it kicks retirement and financial security and fire and all those things way, way down the road. And I think until people understand that and start talking about it in mass, we're just going to keep repeating the same story over and over again. 
the fun part about listening to someone's story is not the hole they dig themselves, but figuring out how they got out. You admittedly had dug yourself this hole. At some point, fast forward into the future, you are lecturing at over 600 college campuses about financial literacy. What was your turning point? Like, What happened after school where you realized, okay, this is not monopoly money. I've got to change the way I do things. Well, there's a woman involved because there's always a woman involved, right? There always is. I met a woman my senior year in college. And, you know, I had, I had had a very serious girlfriend for a number of years in school. We broke up. I had my senior year to kind of go have fun and, and you know, do all the things I hadn't done before when I, was, when I was a couple, so to speak. And I met this woman my senior year and we started talking about philosophies and and how our parents were and how our parents were around money and our fears in life. And, and there, were, there was this point in time where we shared some secrets. And one of the secrets I had that the question that was posed was like, what do you, what do you not want other people to know about you? And I said, I have $8,000 in credit card debt. And she said, why on earth do you have that? And I said, I don't know. I just, when I go out, with friends. And by the way, most of my $8,000 was spent at a place called Shag Nasties. So if that's, <laughs> that, indica- that's the real secret. I don't know if you want to admit that. <laughs> I was proud of that at the time. Today, maybe I should keep that in secret. <laughs> but but I, she said, well, why do you have it? And I said, because when I go out, I want to treat my friends. And she said, but why do you do that? And I said, because I feel like I want them to think I'm successful. And And then later, fast forward six months or 12 months after I had graduated from school, I was having the very same conversation with another female friend of mine. And I, I said, you know, some, day, some days I tear up when I get my credit card statement because I have no idea how I'm going to make the minimum, minimum payment. And this friend said, Adam, you're the most successful guy I know. And I was like, this is all BS. All of it was just smokescreen. And so the first woman who challenged me on it was one of the most financially savvy women I'd ever met. And she ended up becoming my wife, Doc. I married her 20 years ago. And that's what was the real impetus for me was she said, get rid of your debt or I'm going to get rid of you. This, this is silly. We don't, we don't need to live this way. Do you think her financial modeling as a child or at home was radically different from yours? Radically different, but radically different in a way that both prepped her for the life she was going to live and I think also hampered her in some sense down the road, which I can share. But she grew up in a household where parents didn't have a lot of money ever. And by necessity, they didn't buy stuff unless it was on sale and they had a coupon. Her dad was a guy who squirreled away money in a beer stein in the den, you know, hidden up on the top shelf where the kids couldn't, couldn't access it. And when he went to town and he hit that beer stein, you wanted to go with dad because he was going to drop some coin that day. And so one of the other stories she told herself was that men couldn't be trusted with money. And so as a result, you know, when she met me and I had all this debt, she was like, we got to get this under control because I'm going to have trust issues if we don't. And it was really, really good for us. I mean, I think her, her insight, her experience, and her urging me to get rid of it forced our hand, forced my hand for sure, in getting really intentional about how I was with money, repairing my relationship to it, and then getting ourselves out of debt. It's amazing 
how our money scripts affect us. I recently did an episode with Ted and Brad Klontz, who do a lot of talking about and advising on how our past experience as children form these money scripts, which Mm. lead then to money disorders. And even those who have had some good modeling, like your wife, who sounded like she had some very healthy beliefs about money, still was impacted by these episodes of childhood, which gave her maybe not the most positive feelings about money or how men handle money at the time. So it's, it's really interesting to see how that translates into our adult behavior. You and your wife worked through this. You must have done a complete 180 because you went into personal finance for a living after that. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I did. It was... I have to say, my I was a byproduct, I think, of the house that I grew up in, where my dad was a very abundant-minded person. And I always thought, Doc, that when the J. Crew catalog came in the mail, that meant we were supposed to order stuff, because that's what we did. And and I loved, I loved the look and the feel, and I, I loved everything about that catalog and that life that, that it portrayed. And my dad, I think, wanted to give us that. And there's probably a, a conversation we could circle back to on how I think I blame everything on our grandparents' generation. But my dad had this abundant mentality where it was like, we'll figure it out. If you want it, we'll get it and we'll figure it out. Well, I always thought we were an affluent family. And he laughed about that later on in life and said, Adam, we carried credit card debt for years and years and years. And they hoped that there would be a Christmas bonus so that they could wipe out that credit card debt they've been carrying all year long. I just grew up in that household where if you wanted it, you got it. And I think that's what created the $8,000 in credit card debt and 20 some thousand dollars in student loans by the end of my college career. The flipping of the script doc for me, when I met my wife, we read Smart Couples Finish Rich by David Bach. And we went chapter by chapter together. And some of the conversations we had were really hard but all of them were really supportive in the fact that we got on the same page about what we wanted to create together. And I really maintain that two people, when they are 100% united on the vision, can accomplish amazing things in a short amount of time. And so we blasted away every ounce of debt in about 24 months. After 24 months, we had no student loans, no car loans, no credit cards, no consumer debt. The only thing we had was, was a mortgage. And we've pretty much lived that way ever since. And last year, ended up blasting away the mortgage to be truly debt-free, living on less, having a huge life, but not a huge lifestyle. And that's kind of my message today is, how do we build a bigger life, not a bigger lifestyle? So for me, it was a pretty quick flip. I mean, I would say within 24 to 36 months, I had completely reversed my thinking around money and then began to question why, and this is really what started my career was I started wondering, why doesn't everyone know this? This should, be, this should be common knowledge. We should teach it in high schools. Every college student ought to know it. And then I set about doing that. We're talking today about the documentary Broke, Busted, and Disgusted. You talk about flipping the switch, how it became part of your career. You wrote several books, which we won't spend as much time on today. How did you end up being a documentary filmmaker? Like, it's one thing to write books. It's another to counsel people to go give lectures. 
that's stepping out of the box a little bit to actually yeah. make a movie about student loan debt. How did that happen? Such a good story behind this. I, I consider myself a storyteller from stage. I think people learn best when they're told a story and it's done through uh, metaphor, right? I, I, just, I just think people relate to that. So I'd been telling stories from the stage for years. And I was hearing lots of stories when I'd go out and speak to college students. And the stories that I heard along the way were, I have 20,000 in student loans. I have 40,000. I have 50. I have 75. I have 100. Someone told me he had $120,000 for his bachelor's degree. And when I started hearing these numbers, I thought, this is criminal, first of all. You're, you're letting an 18-year-old make a decision that's going to impact them for the next 40 years of their life. And it's, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be allowed. And I, my business model up to that point, Doc, had been write a book, go speak about it. And so I was talking to a good friend of mine who happened to be a millennial and a very creative millennial. And I will say that everything that I've done is I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Like it is not me alone. This is a joint effort. And I talked to this uh, buddy of mine named Calvin Johansson. And Calvin's an insane creative and he, he's, he's a guy, he's very entrepreneurial. He's very freedom focused. Went to the same university I did just 10 years after me. And when I was talking to him about the idea, he said, that would be a killer documentary. Because I had described, I want to call it Broke, Busted, and Disgusted, True Tales of Student Loan Borrowers. And I was going to tell hero stories and horror stories and be able to explain to people how to get through college and, and have little debt. And he said, that would make a killer documentary. And in the moment I said, you're right, it would. I have no idea how to make a documentary. <laughs> and Calvin, now I will give Calvin props on this. He had been doing video production and video editing on his own as a solopreneur for about seven years at that point. And he'd gotten really good at motion graphics and doing some really cool things, but he was doing short form commercial pieces, like three to five minutes, maybe 20 minutes in length at max. And uh, he's like, I said, I don't know the first thing about making a documentary. And then it got really quiet and he said, yeah, me neither. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we, candidly, we brainstormed, we mind mapped everything on a whiteboard next to us, had everything mapped out in like a two hour time period. And then it sat, Doc. It sat for about 30 to 45 days. And I was saying, listen, I'll just self-fund it. We'll do it on my speaking engagements. We'll go out to these schools. We'll interview students. We'll grab the collateral we need to, to build it. And then we realized that's not going to be possible. This is going to be a lot more expensive than we thought. We've got to buy music rights and all those kinds of things. So one day I was listening to a podcast around crowdfunding and it just hit me. It's like, well, why would we not crowdfund this? And so we put together what started out as a Kickstarter campaign and then Kickstarter in the last hour blocked our, our campaign because they said we were giving financial advice. And so we immediately pivoted to Indiegogo. And within 45 days, we'd raised $67,000 on Indiegogo for the doc. Yeah, let, let, let's put that in perspective. $67,000 in 45 days. And you guys were not a known entity. It wasn't like you were these well-known filmmakers. It speaks a lot to the importance of the topic, right? Because people sure. were looking at what this was going to be and finding value in it. For sure. We had a couple things on our side. Number one, we had a killer trailer 
which happened out of two speaking events that I had. And Calvin came and he's just like, let's try it. Let's get a bunch of footage of people. And we had students on a tiny little whiteboard write how much debt they had and hold it up in front of them. And it was a very startling graphic, you know, like that image of having 55,000, 30,000, 18,000, 90,000 come up in front of these people. I think it, it, it took people by surprise. And so the trailer was like two and a half, three minutes long. It was brilliantly done. And we ended up starting that, using that as sort of the prime to prime the pump for the funds to come in. And candidly, we had a couple of really generous donors. We had a friend of mine who's a realtor by the name of Mark Charter, who's an amazing guy, another uh, incredible entrepreneur. He's like, I think I want to associate produce this. And I said, okay, why? And he's like, I don't know. I just, I like what you guys are doing. I want to support it. And the associate producer level was $5,000 at the time. And so he threw in 5,000. And then we had a, a group. It was actually the Sheet Metal Workers Association of Iowa called us after seeing me on the news. I did a three-minute segment on the documentary. And they called and said, we're really interested in this. And we think we want to support it. And here's why. And they said they go out to high schools all day, every day, trying to recruit students into the trades. And the people at the high school will say, well, we'll go pick out the kids who aren't college material. And they were like, listen, we don't need your derelicts and juvenile delinquents. We, we want people who want to work and maybe don't see themselves at a desk for four years. They want to go get their, you know, go, go get their education hands on. And so they, they contributed a significant amount. And so we saw it slowly build and we saw the statistic that if you get to like 83% of your Kickstarter campaign or your Indiegogo campaign, it will fully fund. And so we knew we had this number to hit. And once we hit it and we kept, you know, banging it on social media and talking about it online and in email and to our friends, it just, it ran right beyond our $65,000 mark. And we ended up with 67 grand. I want to go back to that comment about the sheet metal workers. Mm -hmm. You guys very upfront say that this is a pro education documentary. Why was that important for you to make that point? Such an astute question. My business model at the time was speaking on college campuses. And I thought it to be a little bit of career suicide if I created a documentary that was like, don't go to college, don't go to college, don't go to college. <laughs> Which admittedly is not your message. That's not my message. I think there is, first of all, I think higher education is incredibly important to be very clear about that. But I also think that there is an ROI to school that many students forget about and many parents have forgotten about or, or don't really consider. And so, you know, I have a neighbor uh, right across the street from us they're sending their child to a very, very expensive private college. And it's going to be $50,000, $55,000 a year to get a degree that candidly she could get two years at a community college and two years at a state school and then go on to a really nice master's program if she wants to. But by that point, their parents will have, her parents will have sunk two hundred and twenty grand into a bachelor's degree that is table stakes. You know, I mean, it's like it's going to be common. And so that's what I think we have to consider today more than ever is particularly if, if there are students that are at home in the middle of a pandemic going to, going to college in air quotes, 
what are you paying for? What is the ROI? Are these professors that good on Skype or Zoom that you can pay the kind of inflated prices? So I just think we got to be much more intentional about how we, how we consume higher ed. When you use the term ROI, return on investment, I can't help but think about your kids back there playing the Monopoly game. Do you think your average college student knows what they're getting themselves into? I mean, are they just walking into this thing completely blind when it comes to the money they're spending? They are. They are. And, and my first TED, TEDx event was at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And at that TED event, I talked about the changing economic realities of college and that the narrative for most, for most students going K through 12 is go to school, get a degree, get a good job. It still is to this day. That's the narrative. But the reality has changed. The reality is, you know, if you go to school, you're going to pay handsomely to do so. You'll probably take out a slew of loans and it will most likely impact your financial future for the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, if you're not careful, you may or may not get a job in the field that you've studied. And more than likely, you're going to change your career five times in the span of your career. So that degree that you get initially, it really doesn't matter. That, that narrative does not sell. But that should be the narrative today because, you know, candidly, if I were to create a major for what I do today, it would incorporate seven or eight different topics uh, you could not do it sequentially. And I don't know that there's a school out there that would, that would build that into a program as a major. And so the whole ROI thing, I think, is let us, let us look critically and realistically at what college is today. It is completion bias. It is the idea that if you can get through school and you get a bachelor's degree, you can complete things. Congratulations. And if you want to go on and do higher level things, that's what master's degrees are for. That's what PhDs are for. But the, the bachelor's level is really for us to experience life outside of our parents' home, to learn how to study, to learn how to work in groups, to learn how to complete things, to learn to think critically. But ultimately, it's completion bias, in my opinion. So whenever we see a false or at least misaligned narrative, there has to be a villain, right? Like, who is this benefiting and why is this narrative still out there? Mm. Do we go down the rabbit hole on this one, Doc? Sure, of course. I, I think, the, the, how do I put this? The United States, I believe, operates best when a vast majority of people are in debt. And the reason it works best is they have motivation to work. You know, they will work for just the right amount and not more. So, you know how many people are out there working jobs that they, they get paid just enough to not leave the job, but they really don't like the job they're in. And part of the reason they don't is because they have a lifestyle to keep up, which is all predicated on them borrowing more and more money in order to, if we want to say, keep up with the Joneses, maybe that's it, or just have the things that they never got when they were growing up. And so I maintain that college itself is a way of making sure that the workers are in debt and will stay in debt for a while because we need workers to continue to buy and, and take on more debt. If you look at this, this is going down kind of the economic macro level, but, but if you look at gross domestic product growth over the last several years, 
and you stripped away the amount of debt that was taken on, GDP would be flat or negative. So our GDP is growing because we are taking on more debt. And so again, in my mind, I think it just clarifies or or, uh, validates that idea that we need to be in debt and there are engines that will make sure that, that we are in debt as a society. And to take that a step further, that would then explain some of the divorcing this idea of credit from what it really stands for, right? So we have these college students who are going into what's going to be a lifetime of debt, and yet they feel like it's paper money that they can go to the bar, they can buy the nicest furniture, they can keep up with their fashionable clothes. That disconnection between credit and actual wealth and money kind of fits that narrative you're talking about how we as a country might run on indebtedness. For sure. For sure. In my mind, it goes to the inability to delay gratification. And, And because we can give people this immediate gratification, I mean, we are all chasing that burst, right? We're all chasing the dopamine hit. And I think students get it in college and they get it when they go to the bars, they get it when they buy furniture and we get it when we buy a car, but because it doesn't feel real and in context, what I like to ask people is, and and I'll ask you doc, this question to, to, to uh, prove my point. Do you ever hold on to 50 or a hundred dollar bills? Like have a hard time breaking those? Yes. Like if I'm trying to buy something and you take it into the gas station and like, yeah, we, we can't give you change for a hundred. Yeah. It's definitely happened. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to break them. No one will give you change for those big ones. Part of that is that I think there's a lot of counterfeiting that happens in that, that range of bills. So they, they stop taking them. But, but emotionally, psychologically for you, are you more reluctant? Like if you had a $100 bill, a $50 bill in 220s and something costs $39, you'd use the 220s before you use the 50 or the 100, right? Definitely. Why is that? Probably psychologically somewhere in the back of my mind, I know it'll be hassled less if I just do that. Okay, hassled less. I think for most people, they want to hold on to the big bills because it feels better to have big bills than small bills. Or maybe it's too easy to spend 20s, so I keep those 100s and 50s. And, and yet, I know people that mindlessly click one-click ship on Amazon on a $47 product and think nothing of it. Because there's a part of our brain that's impacted by actually handing over physical cash that's not impacted when we hit one-click ship. And we can hit one-click ship and and get a burst of dopamine, but we don't have the counter effect of the feeling of loss when we hand over the dollar bill because we're going to pay that $47 charge two or three weeks or 10 weeks or two years from now. In the first half of the show, Adam talks about the depths of the student loan crisis. After the break, we discuss who's culpable for this issue. But first... All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago... And I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. 
It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Their in-depth due diligence includes meeting with management teams and generally comprehensive vetting of deals they decide to make part of their own portfolio. Once our crowd has selected a deal, they offer accredited investors the opportunity to invest alongside them with the same terms. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROD.com slash EAI and review the current deals. No payment is involved until you decide to participate in a deal. As you review deals, you have access to Arcrod's investor relations team, who you can talk to directly on the phone about your personal investment goals. The investment professionals at Arcrod have already reviewed thousands of companies, invested hundreds of millions of dollars, closed investments in over 200 companies, and chosen dozens of companies that have made exits. Accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as $10,000 or one of Arcrod funds for as little as $50,000. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Siabra, an AI-enabled platform that uncovers online disinformation and deep fakes. As disinformation becomes increasingly threatening to global brands, media, and governments, Siabra reports that it is uniquely positioned to serve this potential $6.1 billion market. You can get in early on Siabra and other unique opportunities at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The our crowd account is free. Just go to OURCROWD.com slash EAI. So what you're talking about is structural and societal foundations that have put us in this place. Yet a lot of what you teach is personal responsibility. So help parse this out for me a little bit. How much yeah. of fixing this problem is fixing society, legislation, et cetera, versus fixing individuals' behavior? The, the initial gut reaction I have to that question is it's a 50-50 split. But, but here's why I say that. I should say, and why, here's why I say that. The, the behavior piece of it is really, really important because I think behavioral, behavioral economics is something that all of us should be 
well-versed in. It's the idea that in my mind that when we go to work every day, we should own a piece of our money. You know, certainly there's going to be expenses and there's going to be debt repayments and all of that. But if we don't own any of our income at the end of the month, that is a challenge. You will, you will, you will probably not get to retirement at the level that you think it should be if you don't own most or some of your income at the end of the month. That's behavioral economics. And we got to change the behavior from the time, you know, our children are children. I think on this, the systemic side, institutions need to change and the student loan program needs to change because there's really no reason for an education major to be able to borrow sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars There's no reason for that. Now, if you're an engineer, sure, go, go get that. If you're a dentist, by all means, you need to borrow 150 to get through dental school. That makes sense. But we, we should not be allowing people to borrow money that is two or 300% of what their income is going to be because they're never going to be able to pay it back. And that, in, in effect, is where the, I think the legislation needs to step in. So we're going to jump in a moment to some real-time solutions here in 2020 to how things can get better. But first, I wanted to ask you how much of our current situation comes from the 2008 Great Recession? I mean, is some of this coming from economic underpinnings of that Great Recession? And if so, how is this pandemic recession going to affect student loans now? Yes. Another astute question, because as, as I articulated in the documentary, in 2004, there was $200 billion in student loans, $200 billion. And it was considered, that program was considered a massive success, massive. Like it was touted as one of the most brilliant pieces of legislation ever. And then fast forward 10 years in 2014, we crossed the $1.2 trillion mark. Wow. So in 10 short years, we tacked on a trillion dollars in student loan debt. And here's what I think was a a cause of that to your question. In 2007 and 8, when the market started to slide, subprime mortgages were going through the roof. The the mortgage crisis hit, you know, it was the fall of Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and countrywide home loans collapsed. All of that was basically, again, this debt-fueled, consumption-fueled frenzy. And in the midst of that, all of the stuff that I researched around where the student loan debt came from started around the 2006-07 mark when on the, the beach states, Florida, California, New York, people were, were borrowing money from their home equity lines of credit in order to pay for college. So student loans actually remained pretty stagnant for three or four years beyond 2004. But in six, seven, eight, nine, ten, when it ro- it just rocketed straight up, what was happening was people realized that they no longer had access to home equity because their home equity had cratered, and they couldn't get home loans. They couldn't refinance. In fact, many of them there were foreclosures, so they went to easy money. And the easy money was go enroll in a community college, go enroll in some private for-profit school, and how much do you need? We'll make sure you get it. And it became really, really easy money. It was almost like credit cards, but credit cards, the bill comes due at the end of every month. And with student loans, we get to kick it out as long as we're in school. So candidly, some of the people who got student loans in those years 
are probably still in school today to avoid making the payments. What's fascinating about that is the transition from homeowner's line of credit to student loans is it also moves from the parent's name yes. to the student's name. Exactly. So there was a major transference happening there that hadn't occurred before. Major. And in the research that we did in the film, we found that even affluent families who they, their students were expecting them to cover all of the bill that they were like 80% reduced in the amount of money that they were sending in for tuition payments. So it, you're, you're exactly right. There was a transference from the parent to the student, and then it became this issue of a whole lot of uneducated 18 to 25-year-olds, now, now probably 18 to 35 or 40-year-olds that are experiencing this massive debt. So we've got a mess here. It's 2020. What can we do as a society and as individuals? If you were to create a top, you know, three to five list of things that can change to make this better right now, what would be on there? Three to five things. The, the lowest hanging change, lowest hanging fruit piece of change that I think we need to pluck is legislation limiting the amount that students can borrow. And realistically, it should be no more than your first year's salary. So on average, if somebody's going to come out of school with a bachelor's degree and they're going to start at thirty-eight dollars or $42,000 a year, that is the top line amount they could ever borrow on student loans unless they went back for a master's program, which would then suggest they're going to make more. But I think, number one, that's, that's where we start. A vast majority of the money that was in that run-up from $200 billion to $1.2 trillion, and by the way, Doc, we're at like $1.65 trillion now. And we're on our way to three. By 2025, it's supposed to be $3 trillion. Wow. So the other thing that I think we could do is that a vast majority of that run-up was in advanced degrees. It was in master's, PhD. And what I found anecdotally is that students who couldn't find a job at the end of their bachelor's program would seamlessly move into a master's program, sometimes at the behest or the, the suggestion of professors. And my logic there is that, you know, how do you be more successful? Well, you go get more schooling because that's all they've ever known to do if you're a college professor. So they're encouraging their students to go on, which makes sense. That's what they did. But some of those students aren't going to do that. And a master's degree might get someone $10,000 more in a job, but not thirty dollars or $40,000 more. So they've taken on thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 more in debt for a $10,000 increase. Doesn't make any sense. So the other thing I think we do is we have organizations begin to create pools of money that send their people to master's programs. A master's program was never meant to go from bachelor's to master's right away. It was go work, get some experience, and then come back and pursue a master's degree in some different facet or specialty. And so I think we need organizations, corporations to step up and say, we believe in higher ed. We want to hire people that have a degree and We'll go one step further. We will help you obtain your master's degree or help you re- repay some of the costs from that uh, student loan debt. And there are some organizations out there that are doing that really, really effectively. Can I give one more, the third? Please. Peace. I think as parents, we have to educate our, our students, our kids around money to understand what taking out $20,000 in loans really means. I believe that 18-year-olds have no contextual understanding at all 
about paying off debt, whether that be a car loan, a credit card, or a student loan. They just have no context to it. So what we can do is we can provide context. We could share, here's my car loan payment. Here's what it takes to pay that off. Here's the mortgage. If you borrow this much money on college, this is what it would equate to in a payment. This is how much you would pay over the course of 10 years or 20 years. Can you imagine doing that? And we take it one step further in our, ha- in our household. We tell our kids, listen, if you borrow $30,000 for school, it's going to cost you about $330 a month for the next 10 years. So through high school, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year, your job is to put away $330 a month. And they're like, how, on earth, how, how would I do that? I'm like, I just want you to feel how challenging it is in an environment where you're making eight bucks an hour or 12 bucks an hour babysitting. And when they do that, when they start to get that sense, an amazing thing's ha- thing happens. My kids are very, very money savvy. And I think they are because they've had to make decisions on their own about money with our coaching and guidance. But I truly believe that by the time they get to college, they won't make a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand dollar mistakes because they've made twenty and fifty dollar ones at home. As the kids become more aware of the real life consequences of paper debt, when they see that it's not just something they can look up online, but that it will truly affect and impact their lives, it makes a difference. And that begs a few other questions. One of them is maybe we need to rethink the four-year college education. This gets back to the sheet metal workers and why they wanted to sponsor your documentary. That maybe we're selling a false narrative and promise to our young people that go get that four-year expensive college degree and it will take you to the promised land. And the reality of the matter is that for a very decent part of our population, as well as for the well-being of our society, we need people who are willing to do the two-year degrees and to learn how to be plumbers and electricians and painters and all those other things. For sure. Are we pushing the four-year education too much? We are. We are. And you go into any elementary school today, any middle school, any high school, and I don't fault these teachers at all because they're really proud of their alma maters, but college posters all the way around. I talked to my sister who's a kindergarten teacher in California, was a kindergarten teacher, now a first grade teacher. And I said, what are you doing in school? What is the, what is the intent of you know, K through 12 education? And her partner is also in, in education. And I was having this discussion with the both of them. And they said, we're preparing students for college. So it's literally from the time the kids are young, when they're kindergarten age, they're seeing college posters, they're being inundated with college messaging. It's the very next step. In fact, at one point in some high schools, they would have a posting of you know, who has decided to go where. And you're looking through all of them and, and feeling bad about yourself if you either haven't selected or choose not to go somewhere. And I think we've got to stop shaming that you know, choosing not to go to a four-year school instead going to a community college or doing, you know, going through the, the trades. I think it's a brilliant move and we ought to celebrate it. Those people actually will make far more money and have far less debt than someone who goes through a four-year degree. You know, if you go through an apprenticeship. In the documentary, we interviewed the president of Purdue University. And in it, we touched on the idea of our four-year schools becoming irrelevant And he said, it's not four-year schools, it's four-year programs that are becoming irrelevant. 
And he said, we put a 500, I think it was a $500,000 grant out or a contest basically to their departments to create a three-year program that would actually work for their students. And by doing so, they're saving them millions of dollars borrowed because they can get it done in, in three years instead of four. I was amazed when I went to the orientation for my son's high school, the counselor spoke to all the parents, the person who was going to be the counselor for a certain number of new high school freshmen. And she started talking about the process towards junior and senior year where she gets more involved with counseling and went as far as to say, and then we help prepare them for their four-year college trade school or possibly the military. And I was bowled over because I had been having some of these very similar conversations being interested in personal finance that she had the wherewithal to be as open as she was in this fairly, I wouldn't say affluent, but definitely lots of middle and upper class kids were uh, there in the meeting. And it was, it was a very eye-opening, and, and maybe that gives us a little hope. We've now been speaking about the student loan crisis and you know, I've noted that we have not really talked much about the institutions. And I'm wondering if we are letting them off the hook or are they not part of the problem? You know, it's funny. In, in doing the documentary, I had conversations with community college presidents, state university presidents, private school presidents, lots of chancellors. All these folks have a different take on what their responsibility is. and. You know, one of them in particular, some of them are very, let's say, woke, right? Some of them are woke to the situation because one of them said, listen, four-year schools aren't for everybody. We, we, he said, I fully believe that some people, the post-high school experience should be a two-year school. It should be an apprenticeship. It should be the military for some people. And some, it should be a four-year program. He said, that's not for me to determine. That's for the family to decide. One particular private school president said, future employability is none of our concern. And I was like, you're on camera. (laughs) Careful. And he said, no, I truly believe this. Future employability is none of our concern. We are raising good stewards of a democracy. And that's what he said his job was. Now, I think that's an expensive way to figure out how democracy works personally. But but I, I don't think that institutions can get a free card here but I also think that at the same time, they're sales engines. Universities are all confronting the exact same situation. And that is that they have to create the best living environments they possibly could in order to attract more people, in order to get more donor dollars, in order to get more tuition dollars, in order to show up as being you know, this great school that has increasing enrollment year after year so that we can charge more tuition dollars, so that we can, like it's this snowball that's just rolling downhill, right? And I think in the midst of the pandemic, there may, there may be a great reckoning. And the great reckoning will happen in the small private schools that go, you guys, if we lose 100 students at $50,000 a year, we're done. Like this is, close the doors, stick a fork in it. I think that's going to happen. And it started to happen a little bit. I think the next step is going to be those students will flood to the state schools and to community colleges, and we'll see their enrollments swell a little bit. But at some point, I think that 
the next, maybe the next, next generation and maybe gen, what, I don't know if it's gen Z or gen alpha, whatever's coming next. <laughs> but I, I really truly believe my son who's 12 college for him will look vastly different than it is for my 17 year old who's going next year. And I think it could happen in as short as five to 10 year span. You mentioned the reckoning for colleges and universities. Do you think this is going to be a reckoning for students also? Or do you think that the upside to the pandemic recession is that possibly people will get smarter, prices will go down, there'll be more competition, and that students will benefit? You know, that's a really good question. I hadn't thought about the students will benefit from increased competition. I think there are lots of schools that are freezing tuition right now in hopes that that's enough to say, hey, we got to stem the tide. So let's tell people we're going to lock tuition down right where it is. But what I do think will happen, this is my prediction, Doc, for the next 12 12 months-ish, this will be the largest gap year ever taken in the history of higher education. I think the schools that are like, eh, you know, we're sort of doing in-person, sort of not, it's all online, blah, 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 not going to happen. I think they'll go back two weeks, four weeks in, those schools will lock down as soon as cases start spiking and all the students will be back at home. And at some point they're going to say, it's a non-starter. It doesn't make sense. I want to go to Purdue. I don't want to go to Purdue online from my living room and they're not going to pay the same tuition. So I think it'll be a massive, massive gap here. And then there'll be this slow trickle back in and people will figure it out. Or they'll realize that in my neighborhood here, Principal Financial Group and Wells Fargo will hire you with a high school education and they'll develop you into the ranks that you want to be in. So, you know, you get 18, 19, 20 year olds making 45 grand a year. I don't know that they're going to be really enticed to go back to school. So we may have this block of young people that they get enticed by a full-time income and then they, they never go back to school or never go back to the traditional four-year school. We're talking with Adam Carroll, co-creator of the documentary Broke, Busted, and Disgusted, as relevant in 2020 as it was in 2016. Adam, tell us what's going on in your life now and where we can find you if we want to continue the conversation about not only student loan debt, but also building your financial future. Yes. Thank you, Doc. Anyone who wants info on me, it's a very simple address. It's Adam Carroll. My last name is two R's and two L's dot info. So if you want info on Adam Carroll, adamcarroll.info. I have a, a podcast as well called the Build a Bigger Life podcast. And in it, I talk about these theories that Doc and I have talked about. Just to, you know, the, the idea of building a bigger life, not a bigger lifestyle. Owning more of your income. How to create freedom and flexibility for yourself, your family, and future generations. And what's going on today, Doc? I'm really, really excited about helping people achieve their own debt freedom. And so we're working very closely with individuals on individual coaching and group coaching level and um, sharing with them some strategies and philosophies around how to blast away debt in record time and think a little counterintuitively, kind of challenge this idea that the banking philosophy, the banking environment has taught us over time. And when when you stop thinking that way and start critically challenging it, It's amazing how fast people can get out of debt. I love this idea that if you keep doing the same things, you're going to keep having the same results. So sometimes you got to think about how to do things differently. Well, I like to say that my favorite saying is I love to read the label from the outside of the jar because it's hard to read the label when you're stuck on the inside. 
<laughs> and a lot of, like we've talked about scripts, you know, money scripts and the stories that people have. Many people are unaware of their money story. And so when I hear someone's story and I say, well, tell me about your earliest money memory. And, you know, what was your parents' philosophies around money? And if money were a person and they walk through the door right now, what's your relationship to them? That answer is very telling about how they are and the decisions they're making. And we can start to kind of reprogram what their money story is and then help them actually deploy their cash flow in a really efficient way so that they can actually achieve freedom, you know, be done working at some, not, not at 80 or 70, but if you want to be done at 45, it's possible. I can show you how. Financial and emotional freedom. I think that's what this is all about. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Adam Carroll. That's a wrap. One of the best parts about having a podcast is hearing from you, my community. And you can speak to me in a number of different ways. One is you can go to our Facebook group, the Earn and Invest Facebook, by going to facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest, become a member, and certainly you can post on our board. Another is if you go to earnandinvest.com, there is a link to SpeakPipe up at the top of the page, and you can leave a voice message. And last but not least, you can also send me an email at docg at diversify.com. That's D-I-V-E-R-S. S-E-F-I.com. I love hearing from all of you. And in fact, I recently got an email from Anonymous that really talks about a number of the points that I try to bring up on the podcast. So I'm going to read you this email and we're going to talk about some solutions. This should be really fun. Anonymous says, I've been listening to your content for a while now and really appreciate your perspective on financial independence and retire early. I really enjoy the stories you tell at the beginning of each episode. It gives the audience a peek into the way you think and not just the specific concept you're covering. First and foremost, thank you for saying that. I really put a lot of thought into those stories that I tell before each episode, and they really are to not only draw you in, but to draw my guest in so that we can all start from the same place. Continuing with the email, I wanted to get your opinion on something that my wife is going through as a fellow physician. Some background here. We are both from the East Coast, but moved a bit from my wife's training. We've moved most recently to the West in July of 2015. She is a dermatologist and has been in her current large private practice since we moved here. She loves her career and being a dermatologist, helping patients doing cancer surgeries, but she hates her job. It is mostly due to her boss who shows a lot of favoritism to the physicians who have been there longer and may make more money for the practice. She's been trying to grow her patient base for a while, but can't seem to get any help from referrals from others. To be honest, her boss is a bit unethical and is definitely out just for himself to make as much money as he can. He often lies about how he will help her and then does nothing. So she's a bit stuck and it pains both of us because she's pretty miserable. We love where we live and the community we have found here. We have a daughter who turns three soon and are expecting another around the corner. I think she's very conflicted about just trying to stick it out where she knows she won't be happy at the current job or ripping us out to move somewhere else and starting all over again. I know you made specific changes over time where you cut parts of the job out that you didn't want. I think she really wants to be a practicing dermatologist, but just not for a boss who she thinks is morally wrong. This seems to be the perfect type of situation where financial independence is the solution. 
but maybe not. I'm a researcher and work for a pharma company making pretty good money, so we're both high earners and could probably be financially independent within two to three years. I've been trying to communicate more with my wife on this idea, but she's accusing me of not understanding. She spent so many years of her life training for this career, and she doesn't want to give it up. She feels that she should fight against this injustice at her workplace and that everybody should be treated fairly. If she can't get it here, then she should be looking somewhere else. She says, it isn't even about the money or feeling financially secure, but being a physician is a part of her identity. Even more, she feels that she needs to stick it out as a woman. If she quits, it's just another example where a woman couldn't take it as a doctor, and that's why we shouldn't train female doctors anyway. They should just have the kids and be stay-at-home moms. She wants to set an example for our daughter that she's not going to quit because things are unfair. So I want to be as supportive as I can in this situation. Many people in the financial independence community talk about retiring early being optional and that you really want to retire or quit to something instead of from something. In this case, it looks like my wife just wants to be a dermatologist regardless of the financial situation, maybe even until traditional retirement age. So is it just as easy as looking for another job and hoping that her boss is fair and the environment is better? Are there other things I can suggest for her to look into? I was hoping that being in a great financial situation would be the solution to never having to regret the work that we do. But it seems that is exactly what is happening to my wife, and I want to help her out of it. I know you must get hundreds or maybe thousands of emails a day with stories and requests for advice. If you get mine, I'd appreciate any that you may have. First and foremost, Anonymous, thank you for writing this letter. There are so many important and key points here. I don't get thousands of letters, but I do get a lot, and I try to find ones that really touch on topics that we cover here on the Earn and Invest podcast. So let's break this down a little bit. First and foremost, congratulations. You mentioned that you were two to three years from financial independence. You have young children. That is no small feat. And I want you to both take a step back, both your wife and you, and look at this as a place of strength. It's really a mindset change. But because you guys are doing so well financially, you have a lot more control of your lives than you suspect. So first and foremost, before you make any decisions, recognize the place of strength you're in and celebrate it. Congratulations. That is not easy, especially coming from a household with a physician who you guys probably had major medical school loans and debt. It is a very difficult thing to be where you are today. So it's a perfect starting place. I really want to touch on this idea about the career as a woman physician. I am a man, so I can only speak for what it feels like from the point of a male physician. But I have to tell you, when I decided to pull back from medicine, there was a lot of guilt. This feeling that society had paid for my education and I owed it to society to continue being a physician. And I guess the first thing I would say to your wife is you do not owe anyone anything. You do not owe the women's rights movement that you should stick to your job. You do not owe your children this idea that you have to be this perfect role model for them. You've paid your dues. You went through medical school and residency. You stuck it out. You were there for your patients, most likely 24-7. 
there is no reason that you should feel guilt for making whatever decision is right for you. Society can tell you all sorts of things about what it thinks you should do. But ultimately, the choice is yours. You're not about making society happy. You're about making yourself and your family happy. And let me tell you, we all worry that we're going to model poor behavior for our children, but our children, more than they see what we do, they see how we feel about it. So if you are unhappy at your job, your kids are going to see that, and you're really modeling unhappy adult behavior. So first and foremost, don't just stick in there because you want to set this great example for your child because more than them seeing you sticking at a job, they're going to see you disgruntled and impatient and unhappy with your life situation. And you don't want to model that type of behavior. Second thought, you guys have won the game. That's right. You are two to three years from financial independence, which means you have all the power in the world. Your finances are managed. Now it's time to start building that life you want. So this is wonderful. You're a dermatologist. You find meaning and purpose. It's part of your identity. If that is truly what you want to do with your life, there is no reason you should do anything. The money doesn't really play a role. Do what brings you meaning. But you now also have the power to get rid of everything about that job that you don't like. There is friction in your life. For instance, this boss is a friction point. You are in a powerful situation. Remove that friction. That's right. Remove that friction. There is no reason you should be staying in this horrible situation. I don't know if the answer is moving out of town. The answer might be working for someone else. The answer might be taking a few different part-time jobs. The answer might be moonlighting at the hospital. I know sometimes it can be difficult to build a new patient base if you, for instance, want to go into practice for yourself. But remember, you do not need to be economically super successful. You already have the money. You are already two to three years from financial independence. You pretty much need to make enough money to pay for your practice and then maybe a little extra to make it those last few years to financial independence. And guess what? Maybe if you leave your current job now and you get paid half what you were being paid before, it might take you another four or five years to get to financial independence. But who cares if you're doing what you like to do, if you're being a dermatologist and removing all that unnecessary and unwanted friction from your life? You can slow down your financial goals. There is no reason for you to rush towards this goal of financial independence if you love working. The key is that you form a work life that you love. Think about non-traditional ways of doing this. You do not have to follow the regular patterns. You don't need the money. Think about how cool that is. You only need to make enough money to make it towards financial independence in un some unspecified amount of time. But most importantly, you need to enjoy what you're doing. If this is truly your calling, do it in such a way that you're proud of. And your kids will see this as they grow up. They will see that you're modeling behavior that will help them in the future. There is no reason why you should be in a situation 
that is unpleasant. There's no reason when you're doing so well financially that you should be suffering every day. It's not good for you. It's not good for your health. Think about all that cortisol, all that stress you're coming home with every single day. You are in a place of power. Remove yourself from that which is harming you. Get rid of the friction in your life. This is a good example of what I call limiting beliefs. We have all of these limiting beliefs about what we can and what we can't do. I certainly did. I had this limiting belief that the only way I could make money was as a physician. And because of that, I pushed things like writing and podcasting and communicating and public speaking all to the side and ignored them for decades. My heart told me I wanted to do those things. But my brain was so limited in seeing the possibilities. So this is what I think you need to do. You need to realize that your brain is limiting your beliefs, that you are working from a place of power, that you are financially successful and have all the options in the world. And so map out those different options. How could you leave this horrible boss and still practice? And look at what's available. How could you still practice in the city that you live in right now? Are there options? Could you go part-time? Could you work in your own practice knowing that you're going to make a lot of less money but still enough to eventually get you to financial independence? Could you work for a hospital? What are some interesting ways that you could fulfill your meaning and purpose and still bring in some money and most importantly, feel like you were doing what you were meant to do? And if that doesn't work, then maybe yes. Should you pick up and move? And who would that benefit? And what are the positives and negatives of that? And last but not least, should you leave medicine? It sounds like being a dermatologist is your purpose and meaning, but maybe... Ultimately, that's not true. I know for me, I kept on trying to tell myself that being a physician was my full identity, and it was only after years I was able to step away from that. I don't know if that's your case or not, but it is okay if it is your case. There's no reason you have to stay with this identity if it isn't serving you. If it is serving you, embrace it. There's no reason to leave it. But if it isn't serving you, have the confidence to know that you are already a successful human being. You don't owe anyone anything. And you need to live your life. Earn and invest in yourself. You will be happier. Your kids will grow up more healthy. And the world will be your oyster. Thank you, Doc. That was a lot of fun. I That's awesome. That, I, I hope you thought that came out well. I, I thought that was a really good conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your, your questions are very astute. Um, and it's, an, it's such an interesting, I don't know, all of it, especially now what's going on. I was reading that the uh, protection for student loans, for student loan payments goes away here at the end of the month. Yep. yep. Um, just the other day, I had a call with a woman who, she went to a, uh, an art institute in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yep, that is that's now uh, the one she she went to in particular is now defunct and um, it was a for prop private for profit deal. She has one hundred and seventy eight thousand dollars in loans, and she is selling commercial flooring 
And you know, she was like, I'm gonna have this thing get out of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have it till I die. Yeah. It's um I like the student loan story and conversation because as I tried to get at, I think it dives deeply into our financial beliefs and the way we financially maneuver the world. And so I've always stayed away from that conversation up to now because I grew up in a family where I never had student loans. So I've been deeply involved in these personal finance conversations, but I never had the personal experience where I could say, okay, I had these loans. I had to pay it off. The only student loan exposure I ever had is when I got married. My wife had like ten, fifteen thousand dollars worth of student loans. We paid off within a year or two, and that was it. And boom, yep. we're done. Yep. Um, my story, which is an interesting story, is my father died when I was eight, and his life insurance money actually paid for all of our educations, three boys, as well as my medical school education, wow. and still had money left over, which was amazing because it was a two hundred thousand dollar policy in nineteen eighty two. Wow. Um, and so I had this bad luck, good luck, never to have any kind of student loan debt. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. 